This episode is brought to you by Hover, where you can register website domains with a company that's not evil. Get 10% off by visiting hover.com best. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Hillary Clinton's landmark LGBT rights speech to the UN, The David Pakman Show, The Onion Radio News, The Young Turks, The Majority Report, The Daily Show, and NPR with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Onion. Good evening, and uh, let me express my deep honor and pleasure at being here. Uh, I want to thank uh, Director General Tokayev and Ms. Wyden, uh, along with other ministers, ambassadors, excellencies, and UN partners. Uh, this weekend, we will celebrate Human Rights Day, the anniversary of one of the great accomplishments of the last century. Beginning in 1947, delegates from six continents devoted themselves to drafting a declaration that would enshrine the fundamental rights and freedoms of people everywhere. In the aftermath of World War II, many nations pressed for a statement of this kind to help ensure that we would prevent future atrocities and protect the inherent humanity and dignity of all people. And so the delegates went to work. They discussed, they wrote, they revisited, revised, rewrote for thousands of hours. And they incorporated suggestions and revisions from governments, organizations, and individuals around the world. At 3 o'clock in the morning on December 10, 1948, after nearly two years of drafting and one last long night of debate, the President of the UN General Assembly called for a vote on the final text. Forty-eight nations voted in favor, eight abstained, none dissented and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was adopted. It proclaims a simple, powerful idea. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. And with the Declaration, it was made clear that rights are not conferred by government. They are the birthright of all people. It does not matter what country we live in, who our leaders are, or even who we are. Because we are human, we therefore have rights. And because we have rights, governments are bound to protect them. In the 63 years since the Declaration was adopted, many nations have made great progress in making human rights a human reality. Step by step, barriers that once prevented people from enjoying the full measure of liberty, the full experience of dignity, and the full benefits of humanity have fallen away. In many places, racist laws have been repealed. Legal and social practices that relegated women to second-class status have been abolished. 
the ability of religious minorities to practice their faith freely has been secured. In most cases, this progress was not easily won. People fought and organized and campaigned in public squares and private spaces to change not only laws but hearts and minds. And thanks to that work of generations, for millions of individuals whose lives were once narrowed by injustice, they are now able to live more freely and participate more fully in the political, economic, and social lives of their communities. Now there is still, as you all know, much more to be done to secure that commitment, that reality, and progress for all people. Today I want to talk about the work we have left to do to protect one group of people whose human rights are still denied in too many parts of the world today. In many ways, they are an invisible minority. They are arrested, beaten, terrorized, even executed. Many are treated with contempt and violence by their fellow citizens, while authorities empowered to protect them look the other way, or too often even join in the abuse. They are denied opportunities to work and learn, driven from their homes and countries, and forced to suppress or deny who they are to protect themselves from harm. I am talking about gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people, human beings born free and given, bestowed equality and dignity who have a right to claim that, which is now one of the remaining human rights challenges of our time. I speak about this subject knowing that my own country's record on human rights for gay people is far from perfect. Until 2003, it was still a crime in parts of our country. Many LGBT Americans have endured violence and harassment in their own lives, and for some, including many young people, bullying and exclusion are daily experiences. So we, like all nations, have more work to do to protect human rights at home. Now, raising this issue, I know, is sensitive for many people and that the obstacles standing in the way of protecting the human rights of LGBT people rest on deeply held personal, political, cultural, and religious beliefs. So I come here before you with respect, understanding, and humility. Even though progress on this front is not easy, we cannot delay acting. So in that spirit, I want to talk about the difficult and important issues we must address together to reach a global consensus that recognizes the human rights of LGBT citizens everywhere. Look inside, look inside your tiny mind, and look a bit harder, cause we're so uninspired, so sick and tired of all the hatred you harbor. It's not okay to be gay Well, I think you're just evil You're just some racist Who can't tie my laces Your point of view is medieval
The sanctity of marriage also, by the way, is a term that's getting on my nerves. There, I was looking and thinking about the fact that so many talk about the sanctity of marriage. We hear Mitt Romney talk about it. We hear about amendments. It's time for the people of America to fortify marriage through constitutional amendment. Yeah. Anyway, then I'm starting to think, wait a second, what's, what's sanctity of marriage? Cousins can get married in 19 states, Lewis. First cousins can get married in 19 states. And there's only full marriage equality in a handful of states. Sanctity of marriage? Cousins getting married? That's what we're protecting here, ladies and gentlemen? Convicts. You can kill someone. You can kill 10 people. You can kill 20 people. You're in prison. You still retain the right to get married. So even if you're a murdering, raping, abusing, evil kidnapper, you're welcome to get married. But if you've been in a committed relationship with someone who is the same sex, sorry, that, that just gives you people the heebie-jeebies. Sanctity of marriage, Lewis. It's, it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Sure, sure. Multiple marriers. Nothing speaks to the sanctity of marriage like the vows you say to your partner, right? Or to your second wife, or maybe to your third wife, or maybe to your fourth wife. I understand people change. I understand more than 50% of marriages end in divorce. You marry someone when you're 25. It's a different person when you're 45. You get divorced. I get it. Sometimes you're still married to number one and two when you marry number three. Sure, depending on where you live or what your beliefs may be. However, Newt Gingrich, for example, leaving one wife while she is in, in the hospital with cancer, divorcing her for someone else, sanctity of marriage, we've got to protect Newt's right to do that but no marriage equality in the majority of American states. And by the way, also on that list, who are people who have themed marriages, honestly, themed marriages, a, a, a Looney Tunes wedding now is taking precedence over, over a 20-year committed same-sex relationship? You've got to be kidding me, Lewis. I know you hate those themed marriages as much as I do. I'm like, I'm like against all marriages. Right. Yeah. No, I, I'm for marriage equality. Too. Everybody should be able to do it, and I recommend it for no one. Right. Yeah, I, honestly, yeah, I, I don't even want to get into this because I know we're going to get a lot of emails. But at this point, uh, I'm, I'm frankly sick about hearing uh, of straight marriages, gay marriages. I don't want to know anything about people getting married. Everyone should be able to do it, and I can't imagine why anyone would. What do you think of that, Lewis? Okay. Even though I understand, obviously, all the legal benefits and why, why uh, right. you know, if, if, and especially as it, as it goes to same-sex couples... If you've been some, with someone for 20, 30 years, however long, 5 years, 10 years, they're sick in the hospital and you can't go see them, you can't make decisions on their behalf when that, that is what they would want you to be doing because of conservative religious politicians, it's really an embarrassment. It really is. Dealing with the logistics of domain name registration for this show is one of my least favorite parts of the job. It's always been a headache-inducing chore dealing with unsavory, hard-to-use companies. That's why I was genuinely excited to not only be introduced to Hover, but also be given a chance to promote them. I've registered new domains with them already and plan on transferring all website URLs for this show to them as well. You can do the same at a discount by visiting them at hover.com best. Their system is bright, clean, and articulate, but not in a racist way. They're just easy, a pleasure to use, and they've even always been against the internet crippling SOPA and PIPA bills currently in Congress. Register your new website domains at 10% off or transfer your old ones by visiting hover.com best. I am misery, the joy and misery. 
This is the Onion News Network, a tomahawk of honesty in the skull of lies. Well, today was an historic occasion in Pennington. That's right, Diane. The entire town turned out to honor Paul Webster, the area's one gay man with Pennington's first ever gay pride parade. Paul, a 33-year-old hardware store owner, was too shy to ask for a parade, but that didn't stop almost 2,000 residents from showing their support for his homosexuality. Mayor Sue Hallinan organized the parade and even chipped in some of her own money to pay for decorations. Well, I was channel surfing one day and I came across a program about the gay pride. Next time I went to the hardware store, I said, Paul, we're going to throw you a parade. And he just said, oh, please don't do that. I don't want that. I beg you. He just didn't want us to go to the trouble. That Paul. Apparently, Paul was so modest that he practically had to be dragged out of his house and into the pink limo that took him to the parade where the whole town was ready to support him. You beautiful, gay, sexy bitch! You just go for it, girl! You work it out! You're fierce! You're the bomb! You're the gayest, most beautiful thing I've ever, ever seen! Uh, he doesn't want to ride on the penis float. Uh, he gets motion sickness, so uh, we're going to have him hold the reins instead. After the parade, the town whisked Paul to an information fair held at the local VFW Hall, where Paul was given pamphlets and DVDs about prejudice, AIDS, meth abuse, and other issues of importance to Paul. I think Paul felt real supported when the whole town stood next to him while Nurse Jill was giving him that AIDS test. And Penningtonians have already decided on a fairy tale theme for next year's parade. Oh, that'll be great. And if Paul has a boyfriend, they can both be dressed up as kings. Terrific idea. Found his butt and picked it up and gave it back and said, Hey, Pops, come on down, we're having a parade. Everybody in this town is turning around in summertime. Come on down, we're having a parade. Don't answer your phone, let it sing and join the orchestra of friends. That will be our soundtrack for today. A million people realize there's better things to do than wasting their whole lives being accessible to you. The first issue goes to the heart of the matter. Some have suggested that gay rights and human rights are separate and distinct, but in fact, they are one and the same. Now, of course, 60 years ago, the governments that drafted and passed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights were not thinking about how it applied to the LGBT community. They also weren't thinking about how it applied to indigenous people or children or people with disabilities or other marginalized groups. Yet in the past 60 years, we have come to recognize that members of these groups are entitled to the full measure of dignity and rights because, like all people, they share a common humanity. This recognition did not occur all at once. It evolved over time. And as it did, we understood that we were honoring rights that people always had, rather than creating new or special rights for them. Like being a woman, like being a racial, religious, tribal, or ethnic minority, being LGBT does not make you less human. And that is why gay rights are human rights, and human rights are gay rights. It is a violation of human rights when people are beaten or killed because of their sexual orientation, 
or because they do not conform to cultural norms about how men and women should look or behave. It is a violation of human rights when governments declare it illegal to be gay or allow those who harm gay people to go unpunished. It is a violation of human rights when lesbian or transgendered women are subjected to so-called corrective rape or forcibly subjected to hormone treatments, or when people are murdered after public calls for violence toward gays, or when they are forced to flee their nations and seek asylum in other lands to save their lives. And it is a violation of human rights when life-saving care is withheld from people because they are gay or equal access to justice is denied to people because they are gay or public spaces are out of bounds to people because they are gay. No matter what we look like, where we come from, or who we are, we are all equally entitled to our human rights and dignity. The second issue is the question of whether homosexuality arises from a particular part of the world. Some seem to believe it is a Western phenomenon, and therefore people outside the West have grounds to reject it. Well, in reality, gay people are born into and belong to every society in the world. They are all ages, all races, all faiths. They are doctors and teachers, farmers and bankers, soldiers and athletes. And whether we know it or whether we acknowledge it, they are our family, our friends, and our neighbors. Being gay is not a Western invention. It is a human reality. And protecting the human rights of all people, gay or straight, is not something that only Western governments do. South Africa's constitution, written in the aftermath of apartheid, protects the equality of all citizens, including gay people. In Colombia and Argentina, the rights of gays are also legally protected. In Nepal, the Supreme Court has ruled that equal rights apply to LGBT citizens. The government of Mongolia has committed to pursue new legislation that will tackle anti-gay discrimination. Now, some worry that protecting the human rights of the LGBT community is a luxury that only wealthy nations can afford. But in fact, in all countries, there are costs to not protecting these rights. In both gay and straight lives lost to disease and violence, in the silencing of voices and views that would strengthen communities, in ideas never pursued by entrepreneurs who happen to be gay, Costs are incurred whenever any group is treated as lesser or the other, whether they are women, racial, or religious minorities, or the LGBT. Former President Mogai of Botswana pointed out recently that for as long as LGBT people are kept in the shadows, there cannot be an effective public health program to tackle HIV and AIDS. Well, that holds true for other challenges as well. The third and perhaps most challenging issue arises when people cite religious or cultural values as a reason to violate or not to protect the human rights 
of LGBT citizens. This is not unlike the justification offered for violent practices toward women like honor killings, widow burning, or female genital mutilation. Some people still defend those practices as part of a cultural tradition. But violence toward women isn't cultural, it's criminal. Likewise with slavery, what was once justified as sanctioned by God is now properly reviled as an unconscionable violation of human rights. In each of these cases, we came to learn that no practice or tradition trumps the human rights that belong to all of us. And this holds true for inflicting violence on LGBT people, criminalizing their status or behavior, expelling them from their families and communities, or tacitly or explicitly accepting their killing. Of course, it bears noting that rarely are cultural and religious traditions and teachings actually in conflict with the protection of human rights. Indeed, our religion and our culture are sources of compassion and inspiration toward our fellow human beings. It was not only those who justified slavery who leaned on religion, it was also those who sought to abolish it. And let us keep in mind that our commitments to protect the freedom of religion and to defend the dignity of LGBT people emanate from a common source. For many of us, religious belief and practice is a vital source of meaning and identity and fundamental to who we are as people. And likewise, for most of us, the bonds of love and family that we forge are also vital sources of meaning and identity and caring for others is an expression of what it means to be fully human. It is because the human experience is universal that human rights are universal and cut across all religions and cultures. He says, baby, I love you, baby, I need you, never gonna let you go. Writes me love notes, takes me shopping to Broadway shows. Talk to him like he is a girlfriend, summer party every night. Never been so happy before, he's almost Mr. Right. I think he's hot and I think he's sweet and I think he's gay and I think he's neat. Okay, okay, said my boyfriend's gay, but what does it matter anyway? He hasn't come out of the closet yet, till then I'll take all I can get. Two, three, four. He doesn't think I know, but I know, I know, I've always known. He doesn't think it shows, but it shows for sure, it's always shown. You might think it's a little sad, but he's the best lover that I a Harvard researcher found that resumes that indicate the job applicant is gay are 40% less likely to actually land the, uh, an interview. Okay? That's, that's really interesting. This uh, reminds me of, um, of the study, a famous study on uh, black-sounding names versus white-sounding names that I believe MIT did and found out that uh, black-sounding names uh, got uh, callbacks 50% less. Now here we have... Uh, people who say on their resume that they were part of a gay student alliance or things along those lines get called back 40% less than people that had uh, identical resumes. And by the way, it's not like the other uh, the part of the resume for the straight students or the non-gay students was, you know, pro-corporate or anything like that. They weren't part of the Republican Association or whatever it is, if we're going with stereotypes here. No, uh, it, they said that they were part of a progressive 
uh, and Socialist Alliance. Mm -hmm. So the guys who were part of the Socialist Alliance got 40% more callbacks than the gay students. Did. Yes, and the researchers actually sent uh, both a gay resume and a straight resume to 1,700 different uh, job openings. Right, okay? again, it's a large sample size, so it's not just, oh, uh, you know, four people didn't get back to you, etc. So it, it's a pretty significant finding, and it's, of course, pretty disturbing. Uh, it does get worse. Um, uh, it, if you're in particular states, and you're going to be shocked to find out that they are southern and midwestern states, uh, the discrimination is even worse. Uh, luckily, though, there is an upside to this. In the western and the northeastern states like California, Nevada, Pennsylvania, New York, um, they, did, they hardly saw any discrimination. Yes. So at least in some parts of the country, uh, we're getting much better. Other parts, not so good. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. You don't know what it means to win. In Michigan, the Republican-led Michigan Senate. Now remember, you need also the House in Michigan and the governor sign off on a bill. But just to give you just a sense of how demented these people are, the Republican-led Senate in Michigan had a bill called Matt's Safe School Law, which was an attempt to ban harassment in schools and bullying in schools for the little kids. Uh, because there have been multiple occasions where, and particularly in Matt Epling's case, which the name was uh, named after, the law was named after him, was a teenager, young teenager, who committed suicide shortly after he was essentially gay-bashed or gay-hazed in school. And, you know, there's all sorts of anti-bullying programs that are being developed in schools because it's a real problem leads to kids being uh, committing suicide and it's particularly difficult if you are a kid who is aware or confused as to uh, your sexuality or aware that your sexuality is um, not what your friends is or the bullies is, and kids get picked on. And sometimes it leads to horrible tragedy like uh, suicides. And usually it just leads to scarring and emotional distress that uh, requires years of therapy or drug use or something to deal with. And so Michigan, to their credit, 
tried to institute this uh, law, Matt Safe School Law. It passed, but not until Republicans in the Republican Senate added these words. This section does not prohibit a statement of a sincerely held religious be belief or moral conviction of a school employee, school volunteer, pupil, or pupil's parent or guardian. In other words, you can haze somebody for being gay if you genuinely believe being gay is bad or icky. If you really believe it, rather than are just, you know, sir, I guess, pretending. So in other words, if these people who ta uh, tormented Matt Epling to the point where he decided, I need to commit suicide to escape this, if they came out and said, yeah, sorry about the suicide, but got to be honest with you, we really, really genuinely hate gays. Hands washed. Well, here's Gretchen Whitmer, a Michigan senator, slamming this amendment to this bill and passing it in this fashion. You know, we've had, I personally have had some pretty hard days here in the Senate this term. Whether it was what happened to the school aid fund or raising pension taxes or the continued assault on the middle class, I think this was my lowest point personally. Because here today you claim to be protecting kids, and you're actually putting them in more danger. There are at least 10 Michigan children in the past decade whose deaths are directly attributable to bullying. I have their names and their ages here, but I can't read them. I think they've been too victimized as it is. But had this bill that you're going to pass today been law in effect while they were alive, how many of their deaths would have been prevented? Zero. You may be able to pat yourself on the back today and say that you did something, but in actuality, you're explicitly outlining how to get away with bullying. Your exceptions have swallowed the rule. As passed today, bullying kids is okay if a student, parent, teacher, or school employee can come up with a moral or religious reason for doing it. You've set us back farther, creating a blueprint for bullying. So this might solve a political problem that the Republicans have. But be clear, you are papering over the problem that is a reality faced by hundreds of kids in Michigan schools every day. In fact, not only does this not protect kids who are bullied, it further endangers them by legitimizing excuses for tormenting a student. And the saddest and sickest irony of this whole thing is that it's called Matt's Safe School Law. And after the way that you've gutted it, it wouldn't have done a damn thing to save Matt. This is worse than doing nothing. It's a Republican license to bully. I ask that my comments be recorded in the journal as my no-vote explanation. Impressive speech. Uh, just reprehensible. You know, uh, when I called uh, uh, years ago, when I called the American Family Association and did a uh, call, I called because they had written a piece about uh, Lenny the Shark being a uh, metaphor for a gay guy. 
And the guy said to me in the extended call, he said, you know, all these anti-bullying things, I, I think a little bit of pre -pr uh, peer pressure is okay. Now, of course, you can't say that because then you sound like, then, you know, people just start making a big deal out of it. But I think a little peer pressure is okay to keep people from being gay. So if you believe, genuinely believe, that gays are icky and uh, deserve to be tormented, you're off scot-free. Sends quite a message to the kids, doesn't it? At least in Michigan. Right. Yeah. The, the, the ridiculous thing is that the, the kid's own father came out and said, I do not want this bill passed, and they went ahead and passed it anyway. Of course not. Of course not. Because it's not just in Michigan. It becomes the template for all of these people. I'm not bullying. I'm just carrying out God's will because I really believe God doesn't like gays. I'm doing God's work. God flows through me as I pick on these people. Hey, people, there's a book you really ought to read sometime. God wrote it, and I quote it. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at majority.fm. The fourth issue is what history teaches us about how we make progress toward rights for all. Progress starts with honest discussion. Now there are some who say and believe that all gay people are pedophiles, that homosexuality is a disease that can be caught or cured, or that gays recruit others to become gay. Well, these notions are simply not true. They are also unlikely to disappear if those who promote or accept them are dismissed out of hand rather than invited to share their fears and concerns. No one has ever abandoned a belief because he was forced to do so. Universal human rights include freedom of expression and freedom of belief even if our words or beliefs denigrate the humanity of others. Yet while we are each free to believe whatever we choose, we cannot do whatever we choose, not in a world where we protect the human rights of all. Reaching understanding of these issues takes more than speech. It does take a conversation. In fact, it takes a constellation of conversations in places big and small, and it takes a willingness to see stark differences in belief as a reason to begin the conversation, not to avoid it. But progress comes from changes in laws. 
In many places, including my own country, legal protections have preceded, not followed, broader recognition of rights. Laws have a teaching effect. Laws that discriminate validate other kinds of discrimination. Laws that require equal protections reinforce the moral imperative of equality. And practically speaking, it is often the case that laws must change before fears about change dissipate. Many in my country thought that President Truman was making a grave error when he ordered the racial desegregation of our military. They argued that it would undermine unit cohesion. And it wasn't until he went ahead and did it that we saw how it strengthened our social fabric in ways even the supporters of the policy could not foresee. Likewise, some worried in my country that the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell would have a negative effect on our armed forces. Now the Marine Corps Commandant, who was one of the strongest voices against the repeal, says that his concerns were unfounded and that the Marines have embraced the change. Finally, progress comes from being willing to walk a mile in someone else's shoes. We need to ask ourselves, how would it feel if it were a crime to love the person I love? How would it feel to be discriminated against for something about myself that I cannot change? This challenge applies to all of us as we reflect upon deeply held beliefs, as we work to embrace tolerance and respect for the dignity of all persons, and as we engage humbly with those with whom we disagree in the hope of creating greater understanding. A fifth and final question is how we do our part to bring the world to embrace human rights for all people, including LGBT people. Yes, LGBT people must help lead this effort, as so many of you are. Their knowledge and experiences are invaluable and their courage inspirational. We know the names of brave LGBT activists who have literally given their lives for this cause. And there are many more whose names we will never know. But often those who are denied rights are least empowered to bring about the changes they seek. Acting alone, minorities can never achieve the majorities necessary for political change. So when any part of humanity is sidelined, the rest of us cannot sit on the sidelines. Every time a barrier to progress has fallen, it has taken a cooperative effort from those on both sides of the barrier. In the fight for women's rights, the support of men remains crucial. The fight for racial equality has relied on contributions from people of all races. Combating Islamophobia or anti-Semitism is a task for people of all faiths. And the same is true with this struggle for equality. Conversely, when we see denials and abuses of human rights and fail to act, that sends the message to those deniers and abusers that they won't suffer any consequences for their actions. And so they carry on. But when we do act, we send a powerful moral message. Right here in Geneva, the international community acted this year to strengthen a global consensus 
around the human rights of LGBT people. At the Human Rights Council in March, 85 countries from all regions supported a statement calling for an end to criminalization and violence against people because of their sexual orientation and gender identity. At the following session of the Council in June, South Africa took the lead on a resolution about violence against LGBT people. The delegation from South Africa spoke eloquently about their own experience and struggle for human equality and its indivisibility. When the measure passed, it became the first ever UN resolution recognizing the human rights of gay people worldwide. In the Organization of American States this year, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights created a unit on the rights of LGBT people, a step toward what we hope will be the creation of a special rapporteur. Now we must go further and work here and in every region of the world to galvanize more support for the human rights of the LGBT community. To the leaders of those countries where people are jailed, beaten, or executed for being gay, I ask you to consider this. Leadership by definition means being out in front of your people when it is called for. It means standing up for the dignity of all your citizens and persuading your people to do the same. It also means ensuring that all citizens are treated as equals under your laws. Because let me be clear, I am not saying that gay people can't or don't commit crimes. They can and they do, just like straight people. And when they do, they should be held accountable. But it should never be a crime to be gay. And to people of all nations, I say supporting human rights is your responsibility too. The lives of gay people are shaped not only by laws, but by the treatment they receive every day from their families, from their neighbors. Eleanor Roosevelt, who did so much to advance human rights worldwide, said that these rights begin in the small places close to home, the streets where people live, the schools they attend, the factories, farms, and offices where they work. These places are your domain. The actions you take, the ideals you advocate, can determine whether human rights flourish where you are. They come to tell me that hell is at my door. How nice of them to warn me a whole lifetime before. I've got the rest of my life till judgment day is due. Oops, look at the time, I bet you got better things to do. I was not a raise the way you were, and yes, I'm glad. I was born this way, get out of my face, do with it like I am. For the 80% of you who listen to this program via the enhanced version of the show, which supports chapter markers, the following clip will include visual elements. Just an average man, living out my life the best way that I can. As you know, in 1996, then-President Clinton signed into law the Defense of Marriage Act, or NAMBLA. <laughs> Dombla. Whatever. It stipulated that the federal government would only legally acknowledge marriages between one man and one woman. It was one of his administration's proudest moments, which is why he signed it at 12.50 a.m. on a Friday night. <laughs> That's Bill Clinton for you. Staying up late in the Oval Office. 
defending marriage. But I thank God he did. I thank God that he did. Because since then, the lines around one man, one woman marriage have become blurrier. Something presidential candidate and motivational food court speaker Rick Santorum knows all too well. Marriage existed before governments existed. I can call this napkin a paper towel, but it is a napkin. Why? Because it is what it is. Right? And while napkins and paper towels are nouns, immutable objects, and marriage is and has always been a social contract that has been redefined by many different societies throughout the ages, originally being somewhat of a property agreement, his point is well taken. It's the slippery slope argument. If people start using paper towels as napkins, what's next? Sleeves, drapes, mouth on dog wiping? You know what, actually? That napkin analogy was stupid. <laughs> Give me a different one. It's like, you know, handing up this and saying, this glass of water is a glass of beer. Well, you can call it a glass of beer, but it's not a glass of beer. It's a glass of water. And water is what water is. Yes, <laughs> Senator. As a Christian, you want to base your argument against gay marriage on the idea that water could never be turned into an alcoholic beverage. Very smart. Very smart. But not the point. Once again, the audience has clearly missed the point. The point is DOMA, Defensive Marriage Act, is all that stands between us and the inability to distinguish between beer and water. President Obama has ordered the Justice Department to stop defending the constitutionality of the Defense of Marriage Act. The Obama administration announced that under federal law, same-sex marriages should be treated just like traditional ones. What? No, Michael, no! That would mean that as of now, marriage is completely defenseless and open to attack from all kinds of mischief, like something like this. These are pictures of Anthony Mack and his husband, Bradford Wells, getting married seven years ago in Massachusetts. But Anthony, who you see there on the right in these pictures, faces deportation back to his native Australia. Bradford suffers from advanced AIDS. If his husband is deported, he loses his caregiver, the man who has been his lifesaver. This insidious process of anchor nursing must be stopped. <laughs> but wait a second. I thought Obama said he wasn't defending the Defense of Marriage Act anymore. So why does this man have to leave his legally married husband? The U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services told CNN affiliate KDVU, pursuant to the Attorney General's guidance, the Defense of Marriage Act remains in effect, and the executive branch, including DHS, will continue to enforce it. Ah, the best of both worlds. The administration won't defend the indefensible. They will, however, enforce the indefensible. Why? Draconian? Cruel? Lacking in basic humanity and compassion? Yes. But remember, if the gays win this one, who's to say what our children will be wiping their faces with tomorrow? Thank you. It's already happening! We'll be right back. Shoes in.
Thousands of same-sex married couples now have hopes of staying together in the U.S. thanks to a change in deportation policy. The government says it will begin prioritizing deportations, giving lower priority to those with families here. And the Obama administration includes same-sex couples in its definition of family. NPR's Richard Gonzalez has the story. 55-year-old Bradford Wells, a longtime resident of San Francisco, has good days and bad days. Well, it's just part of um, chronic illness. I've been battling this disease now for more than half of my life. Wells has AIDS and a host of related ailments. His primary caregiver is a man he married seven years ago, Anthony John Mack, a citizen of Australia who entered this country legally. We're married in uh, Worcester, Massachusetts, July 22nd, 2004. Sitting in their backyard in San Francisco's Castro District, Max says as a spouse of a U.S. citizen, he's applied for a green card. But he's been rejected because under the Defense of Marriage Act, or DOMA, the federal government doesn't recognize their marriage. So Mac is appealing, but his permission to stay here expires this week. So he's left in a legal limbo, and that upsets Wells. We're legally married. I believe that we should have the same legal rights as every other married couple in this country. I don't want to live under a deportation order. I don't want my family under a deportation order. But Wells' cloud of uncertainty may soon lift. Last week, the Department of Homeland Security announced that it will concentrate on deporting criminal offenders. Less priority will be given to deporting individuals who came here legally, have strong family and community ties, and are the primary caretakers of a U.S. citizen. A spokesman says that it can include gay and lesbian married couples. Steve Rawls is a spokesman for Immigration Equality, a gay group that supports Max's efforts to get a green card. There's no doubt that the announcement by DHS last week that they were including gay and lesbian families among the families that they intend to help is a step in the right direction. This week, the government took another step in that direction when it dropped deportation proceedings against a Venezuelan man who had overstayed his visa and married an American man last year in Connecticut. That was a victory for attorney Lavi Soloway, who leads a campaign to end what he calls DOMA deportations. And what that means is deportations of individuals who are married to gay or lesbian Americans and who would be eligible for green cards based on those marriages if not for the Defense of Marriage Act. The Obama administration already has said that it considers DOMA to be unconstitutional, but it remains the law. Meanwhile, immigration control groups are blasting the new Obama policy on deportations. Congress has written the immigration laws of this country. It is the responsibility of the executive branch to carry them out, whether they happen to agree with them or not. Ira Melman is a spokesman for the Federation for American Immigration Reform. He says his objection has nothing to do with sexual orientation. It has to do with what we consider to be an unconstitutional policy on the part of the administration to simply drop cases that are in the process under the guise of setting priorities. As for Bradford Wells, he says he's trying to be optimistic that his husband, Anthony Mack, will be allowed to stay here. But thus far, they have not heard from the government. Richard Gonzalez, NPR News, San Francisco.
And finally, to LGBT men and women worldwide, let me say this. Wherever you live and whatever the circumstances of your life, whether you are connected to a network of support or feel isolated and vulnerable, please know that you are not alone. People around the globe are working hard to support you and to bring an end to the injustices and dangers you face. That is certainly true for my country. And you have an ally in the United States of America. And you have millions of friends among the American people. The Obama administration defends the human rights of LGBT people as part of our comprehensive human rights policy and as a priority of our foreign policy. In our embassies, our diplomats are raising concerns about specific cases and laws and working with a range of partners to strengthen human rights protections for all. In Washington, we have created a task force at the State Department to support and coordinate this work and in the coming months we will provide every embassy with a toolkit to help improve their efforts. And we have created a program that offers emergency support to defenders of human rights for LGBT people. This morning, back in Washington, President Obama put into place the first U.S. government strategy dedicated to combating human rights abuses against LGBT persons abroad. Building on efforts already underway at the State Department and across the government, the President has directed all U.S. government agencies engaged overseas to combat the criminalization of LGBT status and conduct, to enhance efforts to protect vulnerable LGBT refugees and asylum seekers, to ensure that our foreign assistance promotes the protection of LGBT rights, to enlist international organizations in the fight against discrimination, and to respond swiftly to abuses against LGBT persons. I'm also pleased to announce that we are launching a new global equality fund that will support the work of civil society organizations working on these issues around the world. This fund will help them record facts so they can target their advocacy, learn how to use the law as a tool, manage their budgets, train their staffs, and forge partnerships with women's organizations and other human rights groups. We have committed more than $3 million to start this fund, and we have hope that others will join us in supporting it. The women and men who advocate for human rights for the LGBT community in hostile places, some of whom are here today with us, are brave and dedicated and deserve all the help we can give them. We know the road ahead will not be easy. A great deal of work lies before us. 
But many of us have seen firsthand how quickly change can come. In our lifetimes, attitudes toward gay people in many places have been transformed. Many people, including myself, have experienced a deepening of our own convictions on this topic over the years, as we have devoted more thought to it, engaged in dialogues and debates, and established personal and professional relationships with people who are gay. This evolution is evident in many places. To highlight one example, the Delhi High Court decriminalized homosexuality in India two years ago, writing, and I quote, if there is one tenet that can be said to be an underlying theme of the Indian Constitution, it is inclusiveness. There is little doubt in my mind that support for LGBT human rights will continue to climb. Because for many young people, this is simple. All people deserve to be treated with dignity and have their human rights respected, no matter who they are or whom they love. There is a phrase that people in the United States invoke when urging others to support human rights. Be on the right side of history. The story of the United States is the story of a nation that has repeatedly grappled with intolerance and inequality. We fought a brutal civil war over slavery. People from coast to coast joined in campaigns to recognize the rights of women, indigenous peoples, racial minorities, children, people with disabilities, immigrants, workers, and on and on. And the march toward equality and justice has continued. Those who advocate for expanding the circle of human rights were and are on the right side of history, and history honors them. Those who tried to constrict human rights were wrong, and history reflects that as well. I know that the thoughts I've shared today involve questions on which opinions are still evolving. As it has happened so many times before, opinion will converge once again with the truth, the immutable truth, that all persons are created free and equal in dignity and rights. We are called once more to make real the words of the Universal Declaration. Let us answer that call. Let us be on the right side of history for our people, our nations, and future generations whose lives will be shaped by the work we do today. I come before you with great hope and confidence that no matter how long the road ahead, we will travel it successfully together. Thank you very much. Happy New Year. This is Chuck in Salt Lake City. I'm only calling because of one line in my fellow traveler Evan's email. Something to the effect of generations of Marxist analysis. You know, I made it my business in the 80s to educate myself on communism because my childhood had been a never-ceasing stream of propaganda against it. And like I'm guessing Evan, uh, 
the Communist Manifesto convinced me that Marx hit the nail on the head after uh, decades of pounding by the culture that I am a part of, <laughs> I basically agree with you, Jay, that socialism is our only hope of gaining equity and security right now. But I feel your need to, I feel you need to reread Marx before you use your platform to denounce communism in the way that you did. You know, your offhand comment that communists don't want to do everything and it would be nice if I had some of my needs met so I can pursue my own needs. I still believe most of his basic precepts. Resources are limited and capital will exhaust them. Workers are best suited to dictate the conditions of their labor. And labor and resources should be for the betterment of the whole society. And finally, that economics are subject to evolution. And that communism is the apex. I'd be surprised if, you know, well, I guess I wouldn't be surprised, but because people dispute those things all the time, but those things ring true to me. I've tried to use the parlance of the 21st century, not the 19th, so don't look for these verbatim, but I think I've better described it for your listeners who may not be familiar, who simply think that the Soviets were practicing communism and not the authoritarian autocracy that they truly were, or that communists just don't want to do some things for themselves. Marx was never going to see his ideas come to life, and Evan and I were just links in the chain. But capitalism is fatal fraud, and our wrecked planet proves it. So I put up my flag on May Day, and I teach my kids about organized labor. I don't expect to see the day when communism is the is is the way things are done. But uh, I felt that someone needed to answer <laughs> some of those comments. Thanks, Jake. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So today I have a story for you. And um, so first to, to set up the character, I have a friend who, who lives uh, nearby here in Chicago, and uh, she's actually been brought up on the show a couple, like t completely randomly a couple of times within the last several weeks. Uh, the first was when uh, I was explaining why one episode of Best of the Left had been late. Uh, she, I said a friend of mine had, uh, you know, totally unexpectedly needed to go to the hospital, uh, underwent emergency surgery. And so I went and hung out with her for a couple of days at the hospital and was, you know, there overnight and whatnot. That prevented me from getting the show out on time, and I just gave the little explanation just so you guys would know. Um, and then, and then uh, more recently, when I was describing the story of when I went to the uh, Occupy My Heart kind of uh, the little neighborhood play that, that was put on uh, near me, I said that I was able to get one friend to go with me, and uh, and it was the same friend, and uh, and I, I brought her up because she commented after the show. Hey, you know, I'm going to go and I'm going to bring cupcakes or, or you know, so I'm going to bake something for those occupiers downtown because, and I was explaining, like, that's what she wants to do with her life. You know, she wants to be a baker. She wants to open her own bakery. And so that's some, what she can do to add to, uh, to the Occupy movement. So to just flesh this out a little bit more, give you a few more details, uh, you know, the, the hospital stay was completely unexpected. You know, this friend of mine is uh, 26 years old, always been in, in perfect health, never, never uh, any major problems, 
One day she had a stomach ache, the next day she spent the night in the hospital, and the following morning she uh, had an ap appendectomy to remove her uh, burst appendix. Totally unexpected, as those sorts of things always are. And, uh, and you know, before that, I mean, she's college-educated, totally, totally normal person. Under normal circumstances, uh, sh there's no reason she wouldn't have a, a you know, good-paying job by now, making, you know, $50,000 with, with benefits, uh, uh, you know, doing anything she wants to do, you know, multilingual, everything going for her. But as with a lot of people right now, the economy's not working in her favor. So she's, you know, had a job that she didn't like for a while, it wasn't paying enough, and uh, so the option for health insurance simply wasn't there. Like there just was no way to make the ends meet and include paying for an individual coverage of health insurance. You know, she didn't have a job that uh, that gave benefits, and you know, paying for it herself was prohibit prohibitively expensive. It just wasn't going to work out. So you know, she was she was run the gamble and didn't have health insurance. So keep that in mind uh, as I tell this story. So in, in the last episode, I did this little commentary on comparing communism and libertarianism and how, you know, they're not similar, but they're similar in that they really, really should not uh, be imposed on anyone because they go against human nature. You know, I, I don't mind setting up structures of government that are in line with human nature because it, it helps the most people in, in the way that most people uh, need to be helped. That's why I believe in, you know, some form of socialism that, you know, all the details need to be discussed, but that's basically what I believe. And, uh, but communism and liber libertarianism go against human nature, and so they end up not working. And so it was funny to me, but not surprising that I received exactly two emails in response to that commentary. One from an anarchist who wanted to uh, clarify some points about Marxism, and one from a libertarian who wanted to clarify some points about libertarianism. Both of these people, uh, perfectly lovely, uh, reasonable sounding people. Uh, you know, I'm sure I could have a, a lovely conversation with either of them, and I don't want to pick on either of them too much, but I do want to bring up one thing that Matthew the libertarian brought up and so he says this in, uh, you know, um, among other things in his email, he says, I think that there are misunderstandings on libertarianism. And uh, he says this, it's impossible to quote, impose libertarianism on someone because libertarianism is by definition voluntary. Individual liberty is prime. So no person would ever be forced to do anything. In fact, under libertarianism, a voluntary communist or socialist society could exist as long as force isn't used to make people communist or socialist. So I actually received that email yesterday, January 9th in the morning. It was waiting for me when I woke up and you know, among all the other things uh, that were said, I definitely could have responded with, you know, different points and, and different arguments for why libertarianism is not uh, the way to go to, to make uh, society function in the best way it possibly can. But, you know, the, those things are a time sink. You know, you, you end up getting into a back and forth discussion that, you know, even if it's a nice discussion, I, we just don't, not many people have the time to, uh, to do that sort of thing. So I ended up not responding uh, right away and basically planned to not respond ever, uh, but was happy to hear from him. And, um, and then in the afternoon, literally just uh, several hours later, my friend received her bill from the hospital. And I thought, you know, I think it's possible that libertarianism can be imposed on people. So as I said, 
this friend of mine, you know, her dream is to open a bakery, right? Uh, she had all these plans laid out. She's going to, uh, you know, she's already good, but she was going to go to professional school, uh, learn how to do all sorts of fancy things uh, down the line, open her own bakery and so forth. So she, she gets her bill from the hospital for just under $25,000. And uh, coincidentally, about the same amount of money it would cost for her to go to uh, bakery school. And I thought, you know, like this girl would love nothing more than to live in a society where she paid more taxes but received universal health care. So, you know, I thought about this and, you know, she and I were talking yesterday and I said, you know, if if society were to pay your medical bills this time, you know, it, it, it came out of nowhere, you, you didn't even have a job when it happened, so you didn't have any health insurance and you weren't paying into the system. But if, if society stepped up and they helped you with that, those uh, healthcare bills, then that money, instead of being taken directly out of your pocket, could be spent on something like putting yourself through school, which could then make you an entrepreneur years earlier and you could, you know, open your bakery and become wildly successful and, you know, make lots and lots of money and pay lots and lots of taxes that would go into that same system that helped you in the beginning when you had no way of, uh, of you know, being able to individually help yourself. But as it is, this country is obsessed with uh, this, this fetish of, you know, rugged individualism and we have let these libertarian ideas seep into our, uh, you know, our, our idea of what it is to be American. So now, you know, we're stuck as, you know, you, you were gambling without, you know, with not having health insurance, basically against your will. You, you wish you could have had it, but you didn't. And there, there wasn't a whole lot you could do about it. So you gambled uh, by not having it. You lost that gamble. And now you may have to pay $25,000 uh, to a hospital rather than to, uh, you know, a bakery school that could go on to improve your life and make you a more valuable member of society. So I'm not even going to go into any more detail. I think everyone gets the point. And I'm not even saying that this story will necessarily convince any libertarians uh, you know, a against their, uh, their preconceived notions of how society should run. I mean, it, a story like this speaks to me and, and tells me, yes, I continue to believe that society would be better off if we all lived for each other. Libertarians simply believe that no one should be forced to do anything for anyone else, and if they want to voluntarily do it, that's great, but, you know, really everyone should, should be on their own to voluntarily, you know, join up with other people to make their lives better, but not in a structured societal way. So I'm not even saying that, th that this sort of story is going to change the mind of a libertarian. What I am going to say is if you believe that libertarian ideas can't be imposed, then I just think you're dead wrong because libertarian ideas are imposed on people against their will all the time. This friend of mine who was just given a bill for $25,000 would like nothing more than to live in a society where she pays more taxes into a system that is there to not only support her when she needs it, but also others. She has no problem helping out others in need at knowing that society is stronger when everyone can live with the peace of mind that they don't have to worry about an unexpected medical issue financially ruining them and causing them to delay 
what they want to do with their life to, to you know, follow their dreams and, and, you know, do what makes them happy, but also do what makes them more productive in society. That is the choice that she would like to be allowed to make. But because of the structure of our society and the libertarian ideas that have infiltrated it, she doesn't have that choice. So that's that story, and believe me, I know that about every third person listening to this has their own story of, of either themselves or a family member or, or friend who has gone through the exact same sort of thing. And it's, it, it's an absolutely a source of national embarrassment that we still have the system in place that we do. I mean, we are so looked down on by every other first world nation who has uh, nationalized healthcare that, uh, I mean, we're, we're basically seen as barbarians. It's ridiculous. You know, speaking of LGBT rights being human rights, you, you know, the, the right to healthcare and, and universal healthcare is not something that is out of our reach, but for the will of the minority being imposed on the majority. So that's going to be it for today. I'm just going to thank a couple members, as I always do, for uh, supporting the show. Michael B. signed up for a Leftist Monthly membership back on January 16th of last year, and uh, and then actually had to go away and then came back, uh, but uh, but gave more when, when coming back, so uh, turned himself into a uh, socialist supporting member, so uh, thanks for doing that, Michael. And Julie L. signed up for a uh, Leftist Yearly membership on January 1st, 2011, and just had her membership renew on January January 1st of this year. So huge thanks to Julie and Michael and all the members and donors who make the show possible. I couldn't do it without you guys. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black now, black and white. Upon a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor